I felt called to preach whenever I was about 15 years old. And I preached my first sermon when I was about 18 years old. Uh, And I remember when I was 18 and the church had already given me my license to preach and I'd already preached my first sermon and I was about to go off to college to study Christian studies at Howard Payne. And I was all ready to go when it hit me. I started to have this fear. I started to have this doubt whispered in my mind, feeling it in my heart. And I asked this question, am I really a Christian? Here I am about to set out on this journey, about to do this thing where I'm thinking I ought to like help lead churches and make disciples within the church context. And here I am doubting my faith, wondering whether or not I'm really a Christian. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been there saying, is this Christianity thing, is this Jesus thing really real in my heart, in my mind, in my life? Or am I just off? The passage we have today, I believe, helps answer those doubts of whether or not we're a believer in Christ Jesus or not. In fact, we learn early on in our text in verse 22, someone walks up to Jesus and he asks them a question. He said, Lord, teacher, are only a few people going to be saved? It wasn't necessarily a numbers question he was asking. In part it was, but it's also a who question. How many will there be and who will it be? During this time, rabbis used to get in this discussion amongst each other. There's a common debate going on about who would enter the kingdom of heaven. How many would it be? There was this general assumption that if you were a descendant of Abraham, if you were a a Jew, if you were an Israelite, then you were going to be in the kingdom of heaven with the exception of a few blatant sinners, right? But the question all these rabbis began to discuss was what about the rest of the world? What about the Gentile world? What about like, people like you and I who don't have that, that, that natural human ancestry from Abraham? Who will enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus answers this question and in short I think he tells us that the way of salvation is the way of Jesus. And whoever goes the way of Jesus will be saved. Jesus is the way to salvation. And whoever goes through Jesus will be the one who enters into the kingdom of God. So the first thing Jesus says is he gives us this picture of of a narrow way. A narrow door. Look in verse 24. Make every effort, Jesus says, to enter through the narrow door. Because I tell you, many will try to enter it and won't be able to. What does Jesus mean when he says the word narrow door? Over the winter holiday, my kids and I and my wife, we all went down to San Antonio 
and we saw some of the missions, not just San Antonio, like the, the, like the mission, Alamo, but we also went to this mission called San Jose. Uh, there's this little trail of missions all around San Antonio of like more complete missions. Like at, at the Alamo, you just see like the chapel, but these other missions are like fully formed with their walls and their church and their places where people lived. And they're amazing to see. I really highly recommend you go see them. But one of the things we were walking by is we were walking by the main gates of San Jose. And as we were walking by these gates, I said, all right, kids, how many gates do you see? Because you think, well, it's a gate. So it's just like one massive gate. But these gates, you had two doors which both opened up. So you could open up one, and that'd be one gate. You could open up another one, that would be a second gate. You could open them both up, that would be a third gate. But there was also inside this gate what's called a wicket gate. You ever heard of a wicket gate? You might have if you like listened to, to uh, John Bunyan's A Pilgrim's Progress. The wicket gate is what the character goes through to find salvation. It's a narrow, small gate that's either set inside a larger door or it's off to the side. Here's a picture of one. See, in this picture, you have the large, massive gate where you could drive a wagon through it. People could walk through the large gate, shoulder to shoulder, five, 10 people wide, and you can get through. But notice there's a little narrow door off to the side. It's called a wicket gate. It's a narrow door. Why? Well, in times of trouble, times of danger, you don't want to have your large gates open to the enemy. So you want to keep that closed off and tight. And if you wanted to get into safety, into the castle, you had to go through the narrow way, the wicked gate, the small gate. Jesus said in the gospel of Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, he said, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life. And a few find it. The way of salvation, the way to heaven, the way to the kingdom of God, we are told, is a narrow, difficult way. Why is that? Why is the narrow gate a difficult gate? Why is the way of salvation a difficult way? And I have a few reasons why as I was thinking about that this week. Why is the narrow gate difficult? The narrow gate is a difficult gate because it's the only gate. There's only one way to find salvation. There's only one way to get to God. In our world, we live in an age and we live in a time where people say that there are many different ways to get to God. And what you need to do is you need to look at the plethora of ways that you can get to God and you need to like choose your own adventure. And that all ways are equally good and they all have the same destination. But what's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that there's only one way to salvation. There's only one way to get to God. This is what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
And no one comes to the Father except through me. The narrow gate is a difficult gate because in going that way, we are renouncing all other options. There's no other way for us to get to God, to be reconciled to God, to enter into the kingdom of heaven, to be called sons and daughters of God, except through Jesus Christ. We're saying, I have no other hope in this life except for the hope that I have in Jesus. It's a difficult way because it is the only way. Second reason why the narrow gate is difficult is because the narrow gate is a gate of repentance. We discussed what repentance is. Repentance is an acknowledgement of our sin. It's an acknowledgement of our brokenness. And then it is traveling a different way. We're used to, we used to be slaves to our desires and we used to be slaves to our sin. Now in Christ, we're saying, I no longer want to follow my sinful desires, but I want to be obedient to God. Repentance is a turning away from one and going towards another. And repentance is not easy. Tell me, how easy is it to admit when you're wrong? How easy is it to, no, not, no elbowing people here, right? How easy is it to apologize? How easy is it to humble yourself before someone else saying you're greater and you're more important than me? That's not an easy thing to do. But yet that's what Christ has called us to do as a sign that we are his. To humble ourselves before God and to say we would rather have him than the desires of our flesh. The way of Jesus, the narrow door is a difficult way because there's only one way. It's difficult he calls us to repent. But it's also difficult because it's a way that we also have to strive. Look at what it says here in verse 24. Jesus says in the version that we're reading out of the Christian Standard Version, make every effort. If you're reading an older version or if you're reading like an like a ESV or King James, it probably uses the word strive. To strive. What does it mean to strive? What does it mean to make every effort? This word in the Greek was used in like athletic competitions where if you were in this athletic competition and you were making every effort or you were striving, you were giving it your all. Like if you ever played sports and you were out on the field or on the ice or on the court or like whatever you did and you weren't giving it your all, what would your coach do? They'd call you back and say, listen, you sit on the bench here until you're ready to play. You, you sit on the bench here until you're ready to give it your all. Because we, we want you to leave it all out there on the court, striving, making every effort in this competition. Jesus is saying, make every effort, give it your all, leave it all out on the court in order to enter through the narrow gate. What he isn't saying 
is that we're saved through that effort. But rather, when we are saved and Christ is our Lord, that's how we want to live. We want to put that effort out there. We want to put that work out there. We want to strive. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, calls us to lay aside every weight that hinders us and every sin that ensnares us in order that we might fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. What does it mean to strive? It means that we are laying aside everything that hinders us. What is a weight that hinders us? When when the author of Hebrew talks about a weight that hinders us, he's not necessarily talking about a sin. You can have things in your life that are not sin, but they still take your attention off of Jesus. They still slow you down. It's a weight. Think of it this way. Uh, let's, let's say you're going on a hike. And when I say you're going on a hike, it's like not to exercise, but to like enjoy yourself. Some of y'all, that's the same thing. For me, those are completely different things. I either want to exercise or I want to have fun, but exercise is not fun. All right, so let's say you're going to go on a hike and you're going out there for the pure pleasure of it. You're not necessarily going out there to push yourself to see how far you can go. You're going to enjoy the beauty of nature. And before you go on this hike where there's going to be this high altitude and these beautiful vistas, before you go on this hike, you take up this 75-pound backpack and you strap it on are you still going to be able to go on that hike? Well, of course you are. Some of you are like, man, I did that last week. Uh, no, but are you still going to be able to go on that hike with that weight? Of course you are. Are you still going to be able to see the vistas and the beauty? Well, of course you are. But is it going to be a struggle? And is it going to take some of the joy out of the hike? Well, yeah. Whenever we think about the Christian life, there are going to be some things in our lives that aren't necessarily sin, but they are a burden to us. They slow us down. The author of Hebrews is saying, take off every weight that hinders us. What is hindering you and your faith right now? Where you say, you know, I could really run hard after Jesus. I could really strive for Jesus' kingdom. But I got this black hole of time and resources that just sucks it all up. And I'm trying to hold on to this while I'm trying to hold on to Jesus. The author of Hebrews is telling us to take off that weight. The way of Jesus is hard. The narrow gate is difficult because we are called to take off those weights to follow Jesus. Lay aside every hindrance, every weight. But he also says, lay aside every sin that ensnares. I think I've told y'all before that one of the shows I like to watch is called Alone. I don't know how many sermons this has come up in. The, The show alone is fascinating. They'll take 10 different people They'll take them up to the Arctic, like 
in like September, right before it starts getting really cold and they'll drop them off there. And they're like, survive. And they have to be their own cameraman. Some shows I'm watching and I'm supposed to be really impressed by like the host of the show. But the person I'm really impressed with is, is like the cameraman. It's like, yeah, you just, you just jumped out of an airplane, but that dude jumped out of an airplane with a camera. Uh, <clears throat> but these, these people in alone, they're their own, they're their own cameraman. And so they're surviving. They're their own cameraman. They're, they're by themselves. And oftentimes one of the things they have to do is they have to hunt and gather their own food. And one of the ways, one of the, ways the most popular ways on the show for people to hunt for their own food is through snares. You know what a snare is? For them, they take a piece of wire, metal wire, and they'll find a trail, a place where rabbits go, a place where squirrels like to go up and down. And they'll take that piece of wire and they'll tie it to the branch and then they'll create a loop on that wire so that when a squirrel or a rabbit or a hare goes through that path, it goes over their neck And the more they try to move forward, the tighter that snare clamps down on their throat. And as they struggle and as they try to get away, it constricts them more and more until they either die or until a predator comes and finishes them off. The author of Hebrews is describing sin in our life like a snare. That as we participate in those desires of the flesh, those, those rebellious ways against God, as we participate in them, we are putting our own noose around our neck. And as we continue to participate in them, it slowly begins to constrict our life until we can't struggle anymore. The author of Hebrews said as if we want to run hard after Jesus, if we want to treasure Jesus, we lay aside every weight and hindrance, but we also lay aside those sins. Because what we have and who we have in Jesus is far greater than any other <clears throat> desire that we might have. The way of Jesus is a difficult way because he's the only way. He calls us to repent and he calls us to strive for him and his kingdom. That's why it's a hard way. And that's why many people choose not to follow after Jesus. They think the price is too great. It's too difficult. And in our passage, we see many people at the end time When Jesus is in the kingdom of God and he's having his great banquet with all of his followers, he says that there's some people who are coming up to the door of heaven, knocking, saying, can I come in? I want to enter the kingdom of heaven. And look what happens here. In verse 25, Jesus says, once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door, then you will stand outside and you will knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us. And he will answer you, I don't know you, and I don't know where you're from. Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evildoers. 
And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves are thrown out. Let's be honest. It's when we hear that verse that we're like, all right, is that going to be me? Isn't it? Whenever we read that passage, and I think it's in Matthew 24, Matthew 25, when Jesus says there will be people who say, Lord, Lord, uh, let me into your kingdom. I preached in your name. I prophesied in your name. And Jesus says, you. we hear those verses, and that's when we really start to fear. But let me, let me do my best to help, like, help you fight against that. So who was talking to Jesus here and who was Jesus in conversation with? Jesus in this point was in a conversation with an Israelite who was asking the question, will all of Israel be in the kingdom of God and who else might get in? And Jesus is saying the better question is, are you going to get in? Because just being an Israelite doesn't guarantee you a place in the kingdom of God. So that's like the historical context of what's going on here. And the big question is not, are you familiar with Jesus? The big question is, are you following Jesus? Because look, what, look, what, look how the person protests. He's saying, Lord, we ate and drank in your presence. We heard you teach in our streets But notice what they didn't say. We repented and we believed in you. And we followed you. Do you see the difference there? These were the people that Jesus was sitting with in the Pharisees' house. Yeah, they ate with Jesus, but the whole time they were eating with Jesus, they were criticizing Jesus in their mind, saying, why would you heal on the Sabbath? That's, that's who Jesus is talking about here. Jesus isn't having this conversation with Peter, James, and John. Jesus had this conversation with the Pharisees. They were familiar with Jesus, but they weren't following Jesus. So whenever we hear that, away from me, I never knew you, one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, am I familiar with Jesus? I know about Jesus. Or am I following Jesus? If you are following Jesus, he is your hope. You desire him. You want to obey him. You are striving after him. If that's what you're doing, if you're following Jesus, you're already going to be in that banquet. You're already through that door. But it's the people who said, well, I know Jesus. I'm like Jesus. I'm pro-Jesus. But they're not repenting. They're not obeying. They're not following. Those are the ones that Jesus says, "I, I, I don't know you. I don't know you. In fact, Jesus says, In other places in the New Testament, like in Matthew 11, he said it's actually going to be harder for people in judgment who were familiar with Jesus, but who decided not to follow him. 
than for people who just outright rejected and never knew him. Are you following after Jesus? Or are you just familiar with him? It's common to doubt. I remember whenever, whenever I was around 18 and I had those initial doubts, I, I, I thought about this on the years since then about why I had those fears. This is why I had those fears and I doubted my salvation. And I think this is pretty common. Whenever I was 14 or 15, we had a youth pastor come to town who was dynamic. He loved Jesus. He was filled with the Spirit. And there was like a mini revival breaking out in small town Florence, Texas, um, where people were coming to know Jesus. Town of like 800 people. And on a Wednesday night, we could have 200 teenagers. Like, I didn't even know there are 200 of us in there. But like, you'd have 200 teenagers like singing their hearts out to Jesus like hearing the word of God taught. And I remember I would go to those worship services and it it ignited my faith and God used it to stir up my affections for him there. And I had all these feelings. Like I had that tingling up and down my spine. I had like that trying to catch my breath because I was excited about what was happening. But oftentimes whenever there's a movement of God, uh, people like to quench that and they like to like knock it out. And that happened in that church at that time. And the youth pastor left and, and many of the people who were coming just disappeared. But I still loved Jesus. I still wanted to serve his kingdom. I still wanted to preach his word. But you know what was missing? That feeling. That tingle up and down my spine, that trying to catch my breath. And I associated my salvation with that feeling. I thought, since that feeling's out there, maybe my faith isn't really real. Maybe I was just faking it and I didn't know what was going on. But I had some wise people speak into my life and talk with me. And they said, you know, Stephen, those feelings are great, but those feelings aren't always going to be there every time you sing a song or every time you read scripture. You know, sometimes I still get it. Like Jim will start singing like the doxology with that deep voice. I'm like, ah, yeah. And like, I feel it. And I feel that tingle up my spine as we all like together in chorus, like sing the praises of God. Or I'll read something in scripture and it will just hit me in a different way. And I'll get caught up in that. But that doesn't happen every day. We cannot tie our confidence of salvation to the feelings that we have. But we need to root our confidence in salvation in the work of Christ. Look look at what it says in verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came and told him, Go, get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, look, today I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will complete my work. Yet it is necessary that I travel today and tomorrow and the next day because it is not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. What we have here 
is a picture of Jesus' determination to save. How many times in the gospel does it say that Jesus turned and he set his face towards Jerusalem? How many times he says, like in, in, in Luke chapter 12, where he says, like this baptism, this cross that I have to go to, it consumes me. Jesus was determined to go to the cross, to die for us, that we might know God. He set his face towards it. It consumed him. He was driven for it. He said, Herod, who is Herod but a fox? I don't care about Herod. What I care about is accomplishing the mission that God has sent me on to die for sinners, that they might become sons and daughters of God. Brothers and sisters, don't let your confidence of salvation rest in a feeling that you have in your heart that goes up and down your spine, but rather put our confidence and salvation in Jesus Christ who is determined to die and raise again for us. That's, that's the truth. That's the foundation where our confidence lies. Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Once you have salvation in Jesus Christ, it is not something that you can lose. Once you have salvation in Jesus Christ, once you have entered through that narrow door through repentance of sin and belief in Jesus, it is sealed for eternity. Have you ever played that game with kids of like, can you get it out of my hand? I don't even know what that game's called, but I love it, right? Your kids want something and you've got it and you put it in your hand. And you're like, all right, you want it, get it out. I would like to say I'm undefeated. My kids have never been able to pry my fingers open and get what they want out. In part because I'm stronger, in part because I'm smarter, in part because I don't play fair. Uh, <laughs> Jesus is saying, your salvation is in the strong, tight grip of God the Father Almighty who made heaven and who made earth. That salvation cannot be pried out of his hand. This is how the apostle Paul said the great truth and we'll end with this verse. What are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with us grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who can condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Who can separate us from the love of God? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, 
nor things present or things to come or powers or heights or depths or any other thing created will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God has your salvation firmly in his grip and nothing created can open it. And his desire is not to open it. Because think about what it cost him in order to put you in there but the life of his own son. So Christ Community Church, let us walk the way of salvation with boldness, knowing that we are his. And in that walk, let us lay aside every weight that slows us down and every sin that would choke and ensnare us. And let us run the race before us accomplishing the mission of God. You have a purpose. God has you here for a reason, for his namesake and his glory and his kingdom. Let's pray.